Today's episode is brought to you by www.thestardraft.com. Hollywood award season is right around the corner, but let's be real, it never really left. Anyway, that means it's time to play everyone's favorite fantasy game. And no, I'm not talking about fantasy foosball. Draft a team of celebrities, and when they score wins and nominations through award season, your team earns points. At the end of Oscar night, the top score across all leagues will take home a cash prize. So create a league with friends or join a league to make new ones. Drafts are held every night. Play today at www.thestardraft.com. Draft celebrities. Slay your friends. Win money. We share the, the same love, the, the love of film. And now what I'm about to say probably will stir up a lot of conversation around over the country. You commie, homo-loving sons of guys. It's not about you. It's about these characters. They are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men. And I am greatly honored and tremendously moved. Don't let anybody tell you this isn't a terrific thrill. It would be a lie if I told you I didn't know what to say because I've been working on this speech for about 25 years. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. And welcome back to this month's episode of Academy Queens. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. I'm Joe Gentile. And my chest is hairy and in the summer matted with sun oil. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And in here, life is beautiful. The boys are beautiful. Even this podcast is beautiful. I'm Kevin Jacobson. Kevin Jacobson? What the hell are you doing here, boss? Surprise! I just had to give it one last go. You did. You did. You were our very first guest. And Mm -hmm. of course, we had to have you on at least one more time. Yes, I feel honored. I truly (laughs) do. Um, to remind the people, uh, 1983, I believe it was, you were with us for the first time we had a guest where you and I and Brandon got to sit down and really have a conversation about what type of, uh, taste we had in films. And let's just say you two matched a little bit more than you and I. (laughs) Yes. We famously had opposite number one and number five for both things. So that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I'm wondering how it'll be this time. Mm. Mm. Um. <laughs> well, let's start with uh Brandon because it's been a month since uh we've heard from well the people have heard from us. So I'm gonna put it over to you. What have you been up to? Just uh enjoying this little break, I guess, from podcasting. I'm liking the uh the month to month thing. I've been able to focus a little more on my my writing been doing some more reviews for in session film and i just wrote my first review for daily dead news which was really cool so i'm hoping to to break into that a little bit more but uh glad to be back here glad to be with my beautiful boys here in the the kit kat club and uh looking forward to it um kudos on your pieces they have been very good so very proud of you thanks welcome and Kevin, you've been up to some new shenanigans. Tell the people what's new about um, and the runner-up is and what you've been uh, doing. My goodness, yes. I don't remember the last time I was on. So, yeah, I guess I could say that I'm now on a whole new era of the show where I am covering Best Actress. 
something very familiar to the listeners of this show. Um, and I'm going all the way from the beginning to the to the modern day. And right now we're still in the 30s, but we're having fun. Lots of fun guests. Um, and yeah, it's been nice. And also I've been in the thick of the current Oscar season and interviewing a lot of exciting new people who are in the hunt this year so keeping very very busy heard that heard that i have one question for you about the new show Mm -hmm. well how was it revisiting your favorite cimarron it was a torturous experience (laughs) and i wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy so i'm not gonna lie i laughed really really hard when you had tweeted like oh shit i have to do that again (laughs) yep I I'm looking forward to the Louise Reiner double header coming up here. Oh yes. Well, mm-hmm. it's happening pretty much concurrently when this episode drops. So yeah. good stuff. Look at that. You can double feature with mm-hmm. uh, Kevin twice. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, boys, 1972. We've been here before. Um, this was a year that Brandon and I, I think it was, it was, it was our first double agreement on actress with, Diana Ross for Lady Sings of Blues and Susan Terrell for Fat City. Um, Kevin, you were not with us on that episode, but do you have winners? I'm kind of throwing this at you, blindsiding uh, with that question, Sandra Bullock. Um, but do nice. you happen to have winners that year from the uh, ladies? Um, I have not seen all of the supporting actresses yet, so I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. But I do just want to say that of the ones I've seen, I sort of just want to give it to Shelley Winters for the lols. Um, but in reality, it's probably Jeannie Berlin. Um, still haven't seen Susan Tyrell yet, so that may change. But uh, for Best Actress, probably Liza right now. But that is such a great year that uh, I my answer changes daily. So Fair. Yeah. Yep. Fair. And uh, Brandon, do you have anything to add before we get uh, get started here? Um, no, I think I'm ready. Well, why don't you start us with who you think that we're going to choose as our winners? So I think for Kevin, for some reason, I think the actual real life winners, I think Kevin will agree with the uh, Brando and Gray wins. For Joey, for some reason, James Kahn in Godfather is speaking to me right now. And the lead category is a little trickier for me with you because I know you're famously hot and cold on Brando, and we've never really spoken about The Godfather, so I'm not sure how you feel about this Brando performance. And I really am very excited to hear what you have to say about Peter O'Toole because when I watched that movie, I thought Joey's either going to love this or he is going to hate this. And I'm still really not quite sure. But for right now, I'll just say Peter O'Toole also for the lulls. So O'Toole and Con for Joey. Uh, Kevin Jacobson, what about you? Yes. Um, well, I will say for Brandon for supporting, I just have a feeling on James Caan. Um, I don't think either of you will pick Al Pacino, of course, as a co-lead. Um, so I, that's kind of out of the question. And I remember neither of you really liked Cabaret, so, uh, kind of did, but not like totally. So, not feeling Joel Gray for either of you, but for Brandon, I will say James Caan. And for lead, I would say, I feel like you, you're going to go a little off the board and say someone like Michael Caine. I feel like there's something spiritually that makes sense with you and Michael Caine. So we're going to go with that. 
And for Joey, I will also say James Caan because he is hot. And for lead, I'm, I think I remember that you really do like love The Godfather. So I'm just going to say, even though it's a risk to pick a winner, you know, someone who actually won in real life, I'll say Marlon Brando. Two things. I love how hot was in all caps and I could see it across the screen even though <laughs> on video. Yes. Yes. I meant no, it that way. Yeah. Number two, I love, Brandon, how you're like, Joey's either going to love or hate Peter O'Toole in the ruling class because, um, uh, fuck. Oh, he's going to kill me. Oh, my God. You're, I know you're not going to edit this out, too. I'm totally blanking on his name. Not Fritz, our other German buddy. Christoph? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, Christoph. <laughs> Christoph, I drink. <laughs> so my apologies. Oh, God, I have a lot of apologies to, to Ignore her. That. She drinks. Yes, uh, she's starting. Um, anyway, Christoph had said the, say it, said the same thing. He's like, I, can't, I don't know who you're going to pick. You're either going to love it or hate it. So time will tell. Um, whew, sorry, Ben. With that said, Kevin Jacobson, Joel Gray is your winner. I just gut feeling. Uh, lead? I don't know why I feel like you would surprise and be like Paul Winfield and Sounder. But honestly, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to be out there and say you're, you're Paul Winfield. Something about Sounder just for me maybe speaks to you. Uh, Brandon, lead. I want to say you're also going to be out of the box, but I'm actually going to go with Lawrence Olivier here and in Sleuth and not Michael Caine uh, for supporting. I feel like Eddie Albert is very Brandon. And I know you were you really liked Jeannie Berlin in the Heartbreak Kid, and we did not speak about Eddie, so I'm gonna say uh, Eddie Albert for you. So there we have it. Okay. So shall we dive into these gentlemen? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So your nominees for Best Actor in a Supporting Role in 1972 were Eddie Albert in the Heartbreak Kid. James Caan in The Godfather. Robert Duvall in The Godfather. Joel Gray in Cabaret. And Al Pacino in The Godfather. All right, let's start with our winner for the year, Joel Gray, winning for Cabaret. This is his first and only win and nomination. Going into this, he wins the Golden Globe. He ties with Pacino at the National Board of Review, ties with Albert at the National Society of Film Critics, and wins a BAFTA for Newcomer. And he wins pretty much everything he's nominated for, so he has no outstanding you know, nominations. In Cabaret, Joel Gray plays the master of ceremonies, the mysterious host of the risque Kit Kat Club located in 1931 Berlin. So, Kevin, how do you feel about uh, Joel Gray in Cabaret? Okay, yes, we're starting with a big one here for me. Um, I love Cabaret. And I have to say that a big part of that is Joel Gray. Um, this musical, this film, I think would not be what it is without the presence of the MC, especially because he's just so like unknowable. And to me, it's like some of the other great supporting actor winners like Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight or Javier Bardem, No Country for Old Men, like these characters that they just have like a level of, of mystery to them and this feeling of almost like menace. And I think that mystery element is really important because, you know, you want to know more about them. You want to be able to 
sort of wrap your head around why they're doing the things they do, but you sort of can't. And a part of that is also the MC not really feeling like a real person. Like he feels like this otherworldly presence. And I think that's really what Joel Gray really brings to this role. It's just, it's a very physical performance and he's just like bending in all these different directions and all these different facial expressions. Um, and I just find him to be very fun and very entertaining in this film that can often sort of be mired in sort of relationship drama. Um, but he just really manages to really have this like layer of darkness underneath it all. Like he's like the devil essentially and is sort of like looking past what's happening around you. Just come to the cabaret and be entertained. Like, you know, it's a very limited kind of performance but I think he just brings so such a unique energy that um yeah this is a performance that I've always kind of had a fondness for so you were definitely both right on on that instinct that I would like this performance welcome in and bienvenue mm -hmm. um I think is the one of the most iconic lines in this film and possibly of Joel Gray's whole career. Um, Joel Gray actually got his start here in Cleveland. Um, I, when I started in theater in Cleveland, I actually met him and very nice guy. We have in Lakewood, uh, uh, a theater company called the Beck Center that has that Joel is a big part of and actually the street that it's on has been renamed Joel Gray Avenue. So there's a really cool connection with Joel Gray in Cleveland and then Joel Gray in the in the theater scene. It is no shocker that I am not a fan of cabaret. I really am not. Um it's got some catchy songs and uh uh, the Wilkman Bienvenue is, you know, iconic and money. I actually break out with my friend Lauren randomly. We will sing money. Um, so that was a little, you know, fun treat to find out that she even had known that song. Um, but I don't get this. I, the, the MC is a narrator of sorts, essentially. Right. Like, am I wrong to think that? Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Right. There's no there's no character development. There's no there's no reason for me to want to care about this character that he doesn't really play any part in the main story, which I guess like you can argue like supporting nominations. That's what they're there for. They're not there to, you know, be the story. They're there to move the story along. So I guess essentially he is doing his job. So I can't really complain about that. But I, I not I don't understand this win. He's not bad by any means. This is a very good performance, but Oscar worthy? I don't get it. Um, this is a beloved performance uh, by many. Um, Ronaldo, shout out to him, had mentioned in the comments the other day, like, can't wait for you guys to discuss the greatest supporting actor winner of all time. And to which I responded, sorry, we're not doing 1978 Christopher Walken, you know, love him. But no, he was not in this episode, you know, just uh, tossing it back with him. But I I don't get this one. This isn't for me. I'm glad it works for other people. 
great performance, a lot of fun you can tell he's having, especially because it's known that him and Bob Fosse were at each other's throats during the making of this movie. But Oscar-worthy, no, ma'am. So those who listen to our 1972 episode know that my cabaret journey has been long and twisty. When I first saw it back in high school, I did not like it pretty much at all, but that was par for the course because I wasn't really a big musical person. I didn't really grow up on musicals, and I guess when I started watching them later on in life, they just didn't really do it for me. And later on in college, you know, I studied theater, and we did a production of Cabaret, and it all kind of fell into place. Like, it made sense in that venue, um, done live and whatnot. And so when I watched the movie after having done the show, I think I had a mental pushback on it because I was like, no, this isn't this isn't how it's meant to be because I was so you know connected to that stage production. And then I gave it a third go for Academy Queens, and I think I was still in that mental place. And now on a fourth viewing, it hit me in a different way, and I have a different appreciation for it now than I did before. I think what Fosse is doing is really interesting, and that also comes down to Joel Gray. I'm going to push back a little bit on the idea that there's no development to his character while also accepting what Kevin said earlier about him being this otherworldly figure. Like, he's not really a person in, like, you know, the traditional sense. I think that makes sense if you know the movie, because he is sort of this uh, ethereal being, and there is a change in him as the movie goes on, as, you know, fascism and Nazism becomes more and more prevalent as Hitler's rise to power continues. Things become bleaker and darker, and that shows in Joel Gray's demeanor and in his performance and in the change in the mood of the music. So in a sense, he's sort of like a barometer of what's going on in the world that sort of grounds it in a way. Because the Kit Kat Club is meant to be this sort of place where you go to escape from the harsh realities of 1930s Europe. But there comes a time when that's no longer possible and the walls start crumbling and people who are other become very much in danger. And I think that becomes very clear in the way that Joel Gray presents his MC. So I like Cabaret much more than I used to, and I like Joel Gray much more than I used to as well. So it's been like a 12, 13 year journey for me with Cabaret. I don't quite love it to the extent that, you know, a lot of other people love Cabaret, but I've come around to it in a different way, I guess, now being, you know, almost 30, AKA ancient. So, um, so yeah, I, I dig it more than I did when we'd recorded the 1972 actress episode. That's called growth. I yes. love that for you. It's a journey. Yes, love that journey for you. What about me? I want growth. Watch it again. Watch it again. <laughs> Take in what we've said and watch it with that context. <laughs> you know what I genuinely love? I love how all three of our responses to this one performance are so different. Yeah. Like, it's genuinely not just one side and two side, but there is that third point there. 
So that was refreshing. <laughs> yeah. That's why the performance is so evocative. Yes. yes. It's sure. like a Rorschach test. Yes. Everyone's projecting something new onto it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, every time you hear the word Rorschach, I just think of, um, wow, I am not doing good on names today. Little children. Jackie Earl Haley. Right. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I just saw Jackie Earl Haley's face as the MC, and now I want to see that performance. Hmm. That would right. actually be interesting. Yeah. Right. Wow, I am not doing good at names. I think Mama's having a stroke. So uh, next we have Eddie Albert, nominated for The Heartbreak Kid. This is his second of two nominations. Um, going into this, his only win is with the National Society of Film Critics, tying with Joel Gray, and he's nominated with the New York Film Critics. In The Heartbreak Kid, Eddie Albert plays Mr. Corcoran, father to Sybil Shepherd's Kelly Corcoran. He's very protective of his daughter and thinks her new suitor is full of shit and offers him $25,000 to basically fuck off. So, uh, Joey, how do you feel about Eddie Albert and the Heartbreak Kid? So this is, I think, my third or fourth viewing of this movie recently. Um, Obviously, the last time I'd watched it was way back in season one when we had uh, recorded that. Um, And it's funny watching it now to really focus on Eddie because he's the fucking riot. He is the comedic relief, really, of this movie. Him and Berlin. Berlin really is um, the, I, th- I think, the subtle comedy where he is just over the top, and, but in like the best of ways. Also, I know that I think I we had talked about this. I feel like we did when we talked about Jeannie Berlin, but I'm just going to say it again just in case. Fuck Charles Grodin in this movie because that man treats Lila like trash. Like, it was so much more apparent to me in this viewing than ever before and i don't know why like i knew he always treated her like trash but like like kevin's hot that went across the screen i want you guys to see my trash across the screen that's fuck charles Grodin. lila deserved better now eddie albert is really fucking funny here from the uh the moments <laughs> from <laughs> From him, his just physical reacti- reactions to, like, when they're watching the show and um, uh, his daughter invites him to uh, Charles Grodin to uh, – Sybil Shepard invites Charles Grodin's character to come to the boat tomorrow. And he's, like, looking around with his eyes. His eyes get very big, like, cartoonish. Or, like, when he sees Charles Grodin show up at the boat and he's just hauling ass to get the boat off and run in and, like, no one mentions a thing. Like, they're just like, oh, hey, Charles Grodin. And they don't realize that, like, Eddie Albert is, like, wiping sweat off at the top of his lip because he's, like, so exhausted trying to push this giant boat off off uh, the dock. Like, but he's genuinely funny from those small moments to even – when Grodin shows up in Minnesota and he's at the door to when they're at dinner to where he's just offering the money. I mean, and then again, it, he has those big moments there. And then he has like really small moments at the end when he doesn't have any dialogue because it's the um, the wedding scene. And you can just tell like he still just hates this man. And I got to say, if you go into this movie just for Eddie Albert, you get your money's worth. He's really good here. Kevin, what about you? Yeah. Uh, first of all, love this movie also. Um, it's just 
so uncomfortable in the best ways. And I think Elaine May really just masters that uncomfortable tone so perfectly. I actually really like all the performances here, Charles Grodin included. He is just truly like the biggest of dicks, <laughs> like truly in this movie. And Jeannie Berlin, love her. And with Eddie Albert, I think he's a great example really of like why you have the supporting categories. Like he isn't in it for very much, but he just makes the most of what he has. And he just has such a great like deadpan delivery where he's not trying to be funny, but just the absurdity of this situation is making him react in this very blunt way. Um, and I think he really builds up to that outburst he eventually has at the dinner table really well, where he's sort of like, for for a lot of it, he's sort of just assessing this guy, like wondering what this guy's deal is, what his intentions are. And then when that dinner table moment happens, it's just, it pays off so well. Um, it's it's just so unbelievably uncomfortable, that entire conversation. Um, I, I love the line I so much I had to write it down where he says, you stay the hell out of Minnesota, you goddamn newlywed. Like, so perfectly delivered. Um, and yeah, the, the scene in the den where he's just sort of like patiently asking him like how much money he wants so he can just fuck off <laughs> like i mean the writing is just so great but i think he really manages to make that character seem very real and funny without even like going too over the top or in like a cartoonish way so yeah i mean i i really really like this performance and i'm glad that they found room for him in this very like cabaret godfather kind of ceremony here i'm glad that he was singled out too i think eddie albert is exactly what this movie needed when he comes in because charles Roden is truly a the biggest piece of shit possible the heartbreak kid is a really good example of a movie with a main character who is basically the definition of unlikable and yet the movie is thoroughly enjoyable and funny even though you spend pretty much the entire movie hating this guy that the movie's pretty much about. And when Eddie Albert comes in and confirms that this guy's awful and he needs to vacate Minnesota as quickly as possible and leave his daughter alone, you feel like all your your opinions have been validated. And um, that, that dinner scene is so good when he's just sitting there in complete silence while is it Leonard? Is that Grodin's name? When he is just being the most pretentious piece of shit about the food and how authentic the food supposedly is compared to the food in New York. And Kelly's mom is just eating it up. And then they go into um, Mr. Corcoran's study and he just quotes back to Leonard all these stupid things he said, like, there's no deceit in the cauliflower, which is just the most brilliantly written line I think I've heard in a long time. It's so pretentious and speaks to how full of it the Charles Grodin character is. And I think Eddie Albert dishes it back to him in the best possible way, where it's it's not over the top, but you fully understand how how disgusted he is by this awful person who is courting his daughter. And yeah, he uh, he basically confirms all your feelings. And I think the movie is 
it's essential that his character was in this film. And um, I'm, I'm also really glad they found room for him here because it doesn't seem like the type of role that might get nominated for an Oscar, even though I think it is worthy. It's, but it's not, you know, it's not flashy, which I kind of dig. He just makes his statement and um, solidifies the, the film, I guess. Charles Grodin, piece of shit from all of us, heard. <laughs> he truly is. Next, we have the hot James Caan, nominated for The Godfather. This is weirdly his first and only nomination. I frequently forget that he only has this one. That seems so weird to me. It's weird. And Yeah, it really is. Uh, he didn't win anything for this, but he did get nominated at the Globes. In The Godfather, James Caan plays Sonny. Uh, the sort of hot-headed brother who is prone to violent outbursts. So, uh, Kevin, how do you feel about James Caan in The Godfather? Uh, I think James Caan just brings a really fun energy. And and as much as people want to say, like, part two is better than part one, I think part two does somewhat lack, like, the very specific vibe that James Caan brings to this film. I just find him to be so unbelievably charismatic um, in that very specific, like, 70s way and, like, really leaning into the impulsive part of his character, just, like, that kind of guy who's always a part of the action, who's always, like, he likes to live large, doesn't really always think everything through, but people are just sort of naturally drawn to him. Um there's a few scenes here where like he's really entertaining a group of people with like and doing like little voices and sort of over exaggerating in this way that is just really uh fun to watch again it's like everyone sort of like i don't know i feel like in this film it can be very dramatic and almost shakespearean um and i don't think that he really distracts from that he actually manages to sort of complement the film in some way. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love those moments also where he is like showing his protective older brother instincts towards his sister. Um, like when she calls him and tells him about her husband beating her up and sort of that dawning realization on his face about what's happening and just that rage he has. It's this is another one where I think it's a really good physical performance. Um, there's just something very active and almost like live wire about him that I can't get enough of. And he's hot. So, you know, there's that. I sexually identify as James Kahn's hairy chest real bad. Um sexual awakening even at 29 years old i'm still having every time i watch this movie because of that delicious hairy chest um that's all no um this i kevin i am actually in the camp of the godfather one is better than two and that is because jimmy khan really does you hit it on the head wow. jimmy khan put something into this movie that is missing deeply in part two um and it there there's a brassness to this type of family um you know we we've talked about godfather 
twice now with um, Talia Shire in 74 and then the men of 74. And we did that episode way back when. And there is a brassness to, to this type of mafia family. Um, as an Italian girl from Brooklyn, I very much know this type of family. I very much know um, this type of culture. And there is there is that sunny in every family. And then sometimes there's multiple sunnies. And the thing about sunny is that there is only one. You know, Fredo has his own, like, woe is me. You have Al Pacino's character, whose name is Michael. Oh, my God. I almost I, I cannot do names today. Then you have Michael, who ends up becoming, like, the shining star. And then Sonny, who's the over-the-top one. And when that when he dies in this movie, which still to this day shocks me every time I watch The Godfather, I always forget that Sonny dies. And I'm like, no! Sonny! And it is just as devastating. I also don't understand his death scene, to be honest with you. I feel like... like you are in a situation with your father where the whole family is protected with bodyguards, but your bodyguards show up like five minutes after the fact, even though they chased you right out the door. I don't know if it's an editing thing or if it's literally just timed that terribly, but I want to go back and reshoot that scene and put it in because it, it just doesn't make sense. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But no, I think I think James Kahn does really, really good work here, and I'm very shocked that this is his only nomination. Yeah, James Kahn is fantastic in this film, and like Albert in Heartbreak Kid, he's exactly what this movie needs, because all of these men are all so different in the ways they express themselves and the way they present themselves. Um, and Sonny's really the only one who radiates his emotions like Tom and Michael are much more closed off and Fredo is, you know, sort of like a little bit of the doofus, I guess you could say, of the family. And, you know, Vito's on a whole other level. I think the film benefits from this live wire aspect that Kevin had mentioned um, because it would almost be a little bit too quiet if he weren't there providing that sort of energy and friction that the film needs this sort of character who just sort of flies off the handle. And it never really bothers me that his uh, protection shows up later because he flies out of the house so quickly. I think it's because Connie is being, he gets word that Connie's being abused again and he's gonna go kill Carlo. And uh, it doesn't really bother me because I would imagine that a character like him would just leave without really notifying anyone. And he's probably driving at like 200 miles an hour before he gets to that uh, checkpoint where he's gunned down. So I guess that never really stood out to me in that way. But I do, kind of, like you were saying, uh, I don't forget that Sonny dies because it's a very memorable death. But I remember when I was re-watching it for this, when it, he does come to that, that gate on the turnpike or whatever it is, he comes up to it and I was like, no, this doesn't happen yet. This comes later. Wait, no, that's not right. And then he gets gunned down. I was like, oh shit, this is when it happens because it feels so unexpected, even though this is a, you know, a very famous film that I've seen multiple times, it still feels like it comes at the most unexpected place. And I think that's a really great testament to Coppola and also to uh, James Caan for just, you know, tricking me into believing that this character is going to go on forever 
and just be this sort of loose cannon of the family and you know totally being the hottie of the group so yeah really really good outing for james Kong. i i cannot believe this is his only nomination like when i was doing my notes for this and i saw that it was his only one i was uh i was really sad and i was reminded of that fact because if you would like ask me what james Kong's nominations were i would have been like well the godfather of course and then i would have sat there for a minute convinced that there was another one that i couldn't remember and then i'd probably be sitting there all day like no there's there's another one i can't remember but there's another one uh because it is completely rude that he wasn't nominated so that's james Kahn in the godfather i think they set him up especially because well us as cinephile and oscarphile people like especially in the 70s you know we think of like cinderella liberty and then um you know eventually he would go on with like the rose or in chapter two or not the rose um for the boys but like he he did all the <laughs> i am so sorry to the, to that man um but like he had all these role, big like roles in misery even misery. and it's, yeah. just, it's so weird that this is his only one now boys i want your um opinion on this because now that we're you know full circle with godfather one and two godfather two should have been Diane Keaton in Talia Shire's place, and Godfather 1 should have been Talia Shire's Oscar nomination, yes or no? I think that makes more sense in my head, yes. I think it does now. Um, you know, for years, I had always said, well, Diane Keaton should have been nominated for Godfather 1. Uh, Talia Shire doesn't have that much to do, and I, I that was stupid, because I recently, you know, I rewatched this for this uh, recording, and Talia Shire is in much more than I remember. Yeah, same. And I think much more than she is even in part two. And she has a whole lot more to do in this one. And I was like, wait a minute. Why did I always think that Diane Keaton was more present in this one? I have no idea. But yeah, I think it actually makes more sense that Shire for this one and Keaton for part two. Yeah, I always, I never really understood the Talia Shire nomination for two and one she's so much better in even three she's really good in three despite the feelings that one may have about the film as a whole like i always am just so baffled that two is the one that got her the nomination maybe it was a makeup well she <laughs> was a uh, self-campaigning for that one wasn't she for part two yeah so that was probably a big part of it too she might not have even been nominated if she hadn't you know been out there herself trying to make it happen yeah so next we have Robert Duvall nominated for The Godfather. This is his first of seven nominations. Going into this, he takes the New York Film Critics, and he's nominated with BAFTA and with the National Society of Film Critics. In The Godfather, Robert Duvall plays Tom Hagen, the adopted son of Vito, who becomes the conciliary to the family, only to have it basically taken away when Michael rises to power. So, Joey, how do you feel about Robert Duvall in The Godfather? Sorry, Andrew Carden, but I don't know why this is nominated for the life of me. Um, this, is a, this is a Talia Shire thing for me, but in the form of Robert Duvall, where he's so much more impressive in the second one than he is in the first one. I don't understand why this nomination exists. Um, I... I don't get it. I, it's not that he's bad. I just, I literally never remember he's in the first one. Let that sound shady. I don't care. But like, if I just, I don't, I don't get this one. You know, 
why not nominate John Cazell or even John Marley as Jack Waltz, the Hollywood producer in the first 10 minutes, is so much more impactful and memorable in this movie for me than Robert Duvall is, which is also funny because that's his big scene is with Robert Duvall. Um, yet I still never remember Robert Duvall is in this. Um, I don't get this one. This is very, this is a very weak debut at the Academy Awards for me, for a guy who would go on for, for multiple nominations and eventually a win. And uh, yeah, not not a big fan. I don't really have much for this one. So, um, you know, I think if you're going to give Robert Duvall an Oscar win, the great Santini was right there, but that's just me. Um, Kevin? Well, um, I was about to sort of come in here and be like the closest thing that I have to a hot take about The Godfather and like all of its nominations is that I also don't really understand this nomination. Yes! <laughs> Like, I hate to agree with Joey again, but like, Stop that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's again, it's yeah, it's not that he's bad. And I and I, you know, normally I don't mind a more subtle performance getting nominated, especially with all of the over the top stuff we have in both best actor and best supporting actor here. But uh, I just feel like he doesn't really do much to elevate the role. Like he's very well put together. He's very composed. And you definitely get the sense of his loyalty to the family like I think he does get a few moments where he like loses his cool a little bit or that moment when he's sort of tearing up when uh, he's talking to Marlon Brando about like what happened to Sonny and like I think his voice kind of breaks a little bit there but otherwise you know perfectly decent performance he did the job well enough I guess to sort of fit in the in the world without being distracting but to me it just sort of feels like a coattail nomination more than anything so i have not seen all of his nominations uh the great great santini is one that i have not seen but robert duvall is an actor who just generally does not do it for me i don't know what it is but it seems like of all the nominations of his that i have seen I'm not really a fan of him. I do kind of like what he's doing here in The Godfather on like a technical level. Tom is sort of in a weird place, kind of by design, because he's this adoptive son of Vito who's been brought into the family, and he has this uh, devout loyalty to the Corleones, uh, he's basically been accepted as one of them, but he'll never really be one of them. And I think he knows that. And I think that's a conflict that's constantly occurring in his mind. And he sort of plays this cool, cold, reserved demeanor a little bit. I don't know if performative is the right word, but I think for Tom, there is a bit of a performance going on not talking about Duvall playing the character, but the character himself performing this um, detachedness. And I think it does come through a little bit in Duvall's performance if you're really looking for it. Like on past watches, that's not really something that I actively thought about, but going into it for this and really paying attention to Duvall, there does seem to be something there, these sort of conscious layers that Tom is putting in 
in order to seem like the sort of all-powerful from the shadows sort of mafia figure. But I can see where you guys are coming from, where it seems like Duvall's not really quite amping it up in the way that he needs to. But at the same time, I feel like if he did, it would be uh, dishonest to the character that he's trying to play. So he's kind of in this weird in-between situation for me, where I kind of see what he's doing, but I also kind of wish he was he was doing a little bit something else. I don't know. It's a I'm a bit conflicted about this one. But um, yeah, Robert Duvall just in general for some reason is is just not an actor who ever really quite clicks for me. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Look at us agreeing again, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, this is unhealthy. 1983 is shaking in her boots. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, I, I agree. I, I'm i very uh, on Robert Duvall in general, especially his um, Oscar nominations. I mean, I just think of something like, oh, like the Apostle, and I just shudder. Um, oh, but, God. Oh, God. But I will say, um, yeah, The Great Santini is definitely his best. He's I actually would give him I would give him and Michael O'Keefe Keefe the win there for a lead in supporting. But, um, yeah, his Oscography, Oscarography, I don't know how you want to say that. His Oscar resume is not very impressive. Yeah, I don't think he should have seven nominations. That's wild to me. The, the judge is actively one of the worst nominations in that category, I think, ever. Like, I don't want to oh I don't want to open that old wound, but that episode yeah. was a trip because <laughs> I hate that film and that performance. And it's so long. Why is the film so long? <laughs> and do you remember when those <laughs> uh, Oscar ballot like for the THR came out and you saw all these people being like, I'm voting for Duvall because it's his last one. Like, it's like he's already, he's got one though. It's not like he's he's he doesn't have one. Right. But the not, uh, first of all, imagine that year if he had won over J.K. Simmons just based off of the word voting for him because this is probably going to be his last one. The shookery. Sh- shook. <laughs> I'm disgusted even with entertaining this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys don't want to watch the judge later on Zoom. I'm good, love. Enjoy. <laughs> I don't hate myself that much. Well, next we have Mr. Al Pacino, nominated for The Godfather. This is his first of nine nominations. Going into this, he ties with uh, Joel Gray at the National Board of Review, and he wins with the National Society of Film Critics in their lead category. He is nominated at BAFTA for New Performer, and he's nominated at the Globes as a lead. In The Godfather, Al Pacino plays Michael, a veteran who is the son on the outside, who sort of re-enters the family and rises to power when the family finds their foothold in jeopardy. So Kevin, how do you feel about Al Pacino in The Godfather? So I feel like there's always been this feeling that Al Pacino was robbed of the of the Oscar, especially for The Godfather Part Two, but there's also some people who say he should have won for this too. Um, and it's always sort of been tricky for me because I don't think there's any discussion to be had about whether he really belongs in supporting. Like this is a hundred percent a co-lead performance with Marlon Brando, 
And it's such an unfair advantage that he has here because none of the other nominees get the kind of opportunity to really chart this huge epic narrative arc that he does. I mean, he has over an hour of screen time and the film is ultimately like about his journey even more so than Brando's, I think. So, you know, I'm not someone who is as strict as you guys are about punishing category fraud and supporting, but when I do look at these kinds of like lead or borderline lead performances here, I always sort of try to hold them to a a higher standard than the ones who are actually supporting. And I try to sort of look at the individual scenes and how they're sort of contributing to the overall cast and the ensemble and everything so yeah but having said all that i mean this is a performance that does hold up and it's a performance that he does just modulate so well from the beginning where he's so restrained um and you know and then eventually becoming much more showy and emotive and you know in the beginning i think you see him as pretty calm and he can sort of hold his own but he doesn't really have that energy of being that like ruthless type of mob boss person that he would become. But you can also just sense from the way he talks to people and just like stares at people with those gigantic eyes he has um, that there's something going on underneath the surface. And it's kind of chilling. And especially as it, as it goes along, it just becomes all the more chilling and dark for me um and so much more compelling uh like when he's sort of plotting the whole thing that's going to go down at the restaurant i think that's a great scene for him and then there's just like an entire second half of the film that he completely dominates pretty much from beginning to end um and it's there's there's just so much material here that it seems so wrong to even be having a conversation about this being a supporting actor domination. Um, but otherwise, like regardless of any sort of Oscar discussion or later supporting, it's a phenomenal performance. Like I have no notes. All right, Kevin, here it is. I warned you. He's in okay. the correct category. Oh, please. And- going to get into that in just a moment um (laughs) you said so um i'm about to name drop here uh so when i recently sat down with martha plimpton here i'm gonna pick that back up now um to talk about mass which side note if anyone hasn't seen mass yet go see it it is phenomenal um i had told her while watching the movie that there is her character is almost like a tea kettle and she plays this role as a woman who's going to burst at any second, but is able to really control the dial and therefore control her motion and therefore control us, the viewer. That's Pacino here as Michael, especially in the beginning when we when we get a very, I don't want to say meek Michael, because I don't think Michael's ever meek, but we get a um, maybe an easier michael a michael who you know if you don't say something in the wrong tone won't like you know get you shot or something you know what i mean um and so pacino is playing it from zero to a hundred throughout this whole film he starts at zero he ends at a hundred 
And I think that's perfect because he's giving you the full spectrum of Michael, a guy who wants nothing to do with this family business, to now he's taking over control. And I think that's great. And I understand why people have said in the past, you know, he was robbed for Godfather 2, as you said, Kevin, and he was robbed for this one, but he's really a lead. I'm going to push against that, and here's why. If you look at The Godfather as a trilogy, and not obviously including Coda, but you can include Coda if you want, because it's actually Coda's fantastic. Um, but if you look at The Godfather 1, this movie isn't about Don. This movie isn't about Michael. It's about the Corleone family. It's an ensemble piece. We're never, ever once fully focusing on a single character leading the movie we're focusing on parts of michael we're focusing on parts of don we're focusing on parts of sunny parts of fredo and the dynamic of the family it's never one character's full story and then you look at part two and i said this on the 1974 episode where I actually think Robert De Niro is category frauded. He's a lead because part two is two movies in one. One part of the movie is all about Michael and how Michael now runs the family. And the other half is all about Don and how Don started the family. That's not happening here in part one. Um, this movie won't work without everyone doing their part and they're equal footing in my eyes, despite screen time or not. Um, I mean, it's no, it, I mean, it, I'm just saying it now, if anyone's category fraud and it's Marlon Brando. And I think that's almost like a universal feeling for most of this, but that's probably like a universal feeling because most people see Al Pacino as the lead. But with that, that I give you, I kind of ask anyone to go back and see it and now really like look at who's lead and who's not and you'll and like if you see how the film is about the family story and not michael's story you'll really understand how al pacino's not a lead love the guy in this but he's in the right category um no he's not uh he is a, a lead in this it's a okay. co-lead situation <laughs> so it is about michael's rise to power and the sort of changing of the guard Vito's fall and michael's rise no one is besides uh vito is really on michael's level here al pacino is giving i think a fantastic performance in this film um he is really delivering that sort of dangerously calm demeanor that i think tom is attempting to project comparing them back and forth Tom and Michael kind of makes me like Duvall's performance a little bit more, actually, because I think Michael is doing what Tom wants to be doing. And I think that comes through with, you know, Tom's sort of desperate devotion to the family. And uh, Michael has this really scary detachedness to him sometimes. And going back through it on this rewatch that I did for this, it's kind of clear knowing the end game where he's going to go like at connie's wedding where he just very casually describes what making an offer that can't be refused is to Kay. there's something really uncomfortable about how okay he is with it like she is genuinely disturbed 
that this is the family that the love of her life comes from. And he's like, yeah, that's just business. That's what we do. I'm not really part of it. It's what they do, but I'm part of them. And it's just really weird. So watching that, you can kind of see how Michael has it in him to be this really vicious, terrifying Don. He just has a very large journey to go through to get there. And um, I think this is definitely his story here. It's not only his story. There's two leads here. Um, They're on two different sort of opposite yet complementary trajectories. But Al Pacino, I think, is definitely a lead here. Uh, This is a category issue for me. And um, yeah, I don't quite see it as an ensemble because no one else is really quite on his level. So um, yeah, Al Pacino gives a stunning performance. It's just too bad it's in this category for me. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I see what you guys are putting down. I, you know, no one's going to be changing anyone's minds here. I feel not, that's no. totally fine. Um, <laughs> I just, like I said, I I dare anyone to go back and watch it and just go through the trilogy as a whole. And you'll see the first one is the family. The second one is Michael and and, uh, Vito. And the third one is actually Connie and uh, Michael. So it's it's actually really fascinating how each chapter has its own protagonist. Um, So that's just, again, that's just kind of what I'm putting forward to it on it. So um at least we know where someone's going for each of us at this point (laughs) all right now this lead actor lineup had some controversy that we will get into very shortly so as a reminder your lead actors of 1972 were marlon brando in the godfather michael kane in sleuth Laurence olivier in sleuth Peter O'Toole in the ruling class. Paul Winfield in sound. All right. So let's start with let's start with the controversy of what happened. Uh, Marlon Brando wins as Don Vito Corleone in The Godfather. This is the sixth of eight nominations. Going into Oscar night, he wins uh, the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Drama. He's nominated at BAFTA. He's nominated uh, at New York Film Critics Society. And he gets second place in the National Society of Film Critics. Now, here's the kicker. Golden Globe, he refused it to protest U.S. imperialism and racism. When he wins the Oscar, he declines it and says, sends Sashin Littlefeather to go collect it, who turns out in the long run was actually an actress. Um, so that's a, there was like a whole separate controversy about that. So, Kevin, let's start with what you think and then kind of give us your reaction of what happened. Okay, yeah. Well, um, Marlon Brando, this is a very big performance um, using a different voice, physically transforming. Um, He's playing a character that is 20 years older than he was. So uh, lots of ticking a lot of boxes here in terms of the Academy here. But um, he's just very commanding pretty much from the first scene he is just this very intimidating presence and i think it's because he has this sensibility about him not only in this role but in other roles for me where it always seems like he's calculating something but you don't really know what's gonna come out of his mouth and 
I think that's what makes him feel kind of spontaneous in a way um, as an actor. So part of what I do find interesting about him is just the choices that he makes, even if I am kind of baffled by them sometimes, like he's far from a perfect actor. Um, So yeah, that's what sort of makes him watchable. And especially in a role like this, uh, really just controlling pretty much every scene that he's in. Um, You know, there are times when I do think maybe he's overdoing it a little bit with the hand gestures and the the wheezy voice and all of that. But, you know, I guess I'm a fan of sort of theatrical performances anyway. And I think most of his choices do work. Um, In fact, I think he maybe even could have gone even more over the top with this performance and really gone into like the self-indulgent Marlon Brando apocalypse now type of thing. Um, but I think he reined it in enough. Um, and the way he speaks, I feel like you almost want to lean in, like almost like you're in the conversation with him. Um, and pretty much all of that is just established in that big opening sequence at the wedding. And it just continues through the whole thing. And, you know, I feel like just when you think that you've pretty much gotten the gist of his performance, like he comes out with this scene at the coroner's office and he's saying like, look how they massacred my boy. And it's one of the only times that he's showing that kind of emotion in the whole film. And I think he just knocks it out of the park. Um, You know, I sort I wish I could just be cool and be like, you know, I think this performance is overrated, but I think it still holds up. I think it's fantastic. Um, And as far as the whole controversy of it all, very much agree with the message that he had in that case. I just feel like it was not the right way to sort of go about it because it ended up making this woman who was an actress essentially a little bit into almost a scapegoat uh, situation. And it just sort of, soured things like I just feel like it it wasn't the right means of doing it but respect for making a big stunt queen moment listen we gotta we gotta love that I also really like this performance here um to to use a word that's a bit overused on the internet uh this is truly an iconic performance in the purest sense there's never really been a a performance quite like Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone in The Godfather. That tendency to want to lean into this performance that you mentioned, Kevin, is a total power move. I don't remember who told me this recently, but someone had mentioned that sometimes when they're speaking to people or in meetings, they'll sometimes speak a little bit quieter than they might naturally want to or mumble just a little bit more than they might normally do in order to get people to lean in because it it is a bit of a power move to sort of manipulate people in this really subtle way. And I think Vito kind of does that a little bit. And I really dig it. And whatever Marlon Brando is doing with like his jowls, like I guess he, I think he stuffed it with like cotton balls or something in real life to give him that sort of look and the way it sort of forces him to move his mouth. I think it's really working here, whatever he's doing. And he does find these opportunities to emote when the performance calls for it. Because he is supposed to be this, you know, 
this all-powerful person who is to be feared, who, you know, sort of literally lives in the shadows as, you know, Gordon Willis photographs this film. But he does find these moments, like when Sonny has passed, and he has this little moment with Michael out in, like, the garden after Michael's returned from Sicily and Vito has recovered. And he talks about how he drinks wine more, which is just a really fun little moment where we get to see the sort of human side of Vito. So I think Brando finds these really interesting opportunities to make this person who is kind of unrelatable in a lot of ways, a little bit more sneakily relatable. So I really dig it. And yeah, I guess it, the performance and the win probably does have its naysayers who say it's overrated or whatever, but that's just silly because I think he is great here and he's in a great film just being great. So go Marlon. Um, this is a really good performance. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Marlon Brando's Oscar resume. I know some people really, really hold him high for things like Streetcar and um, On the Waterfront. He's fine. But, like, I love this one. I just really hate that it's this category, though, because, again, this is in my eyes, an ensemble piece, and he's a part of the puzzle. He's not the whole puzzle. Um, so I hate, I hate what I have to do, but it's coming. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I love him in this. I think he's really good. I think there's something fantastic um, that comes off. Like when I mentioned how every Italian family has that sunny, every Italian family has that uncle or that grandfather that's very much like Don, um and you know it brings back warm memories of murder and spaghetti um but no it's 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 a really it's a really good performance i like i i think method acting is a lot i've said it before i don't believe in it acting is acting for a reason um and i think marlon brando like jared leto has had very over the top ideas of what has to happen for method acting and I think this is definitely one of them. I think I read once that he actually suffered like internal mouth issues, like his gum line due to the cotton balls and whatnot. And it's just like, don't hurt yourself for a role, man. It's it's a movie. Um, but, I, you know, a dedication, dedication. I also agree with Kevin. I think the way he handled that um, was probably not the best way, I but I support the message. Um, my question to you guys is because he was the second person in like three years to do or yeah, two or three years to decline an Oscar because um, George C. Scott declined for Patton. If an actor declines the award, should it or should it not then go to the second place person? I think it should have. What about you guys? Wow. I feel like I need to know who the second place person was in order to decide whether or not it should have gone to them. But um, and if you disagree, it goes to the third person. Right. <laughs> that's totally fair. Right. That's how it works. Um, that's an interesting thought that I had never really quite um, pondered over. Yeah. Um, I just feel like it's an awkward situation to sort of have to be like, oh, well, you get the Oscar because the person who actually won declined it. Like it's, I, it doesn't really sit right with me. 
Or maybe, uh, maybe I know the the museum didn't exist. Maybe it just goes into some sort of like archive or display where it's like this is who the majority of the academy voted for, but they didn't want it, so now it's here in this case. Yeah, I can't remember. I think it was Glenda Jackson, and I really hope it is because <laughs> it's a very Glenda Jackson thing to do. But I, I feel like I remember reading someone who had two Oscars just started using them as legit doorstops, and the one got bent. And I kind of hope that that just happened to it in the way. I want that to be Glenda Jackson. I want her to have used it in, like, her parliament office. <laughs> like, that's how little she cared. Yes. But she also wanted people to know that she was a bad bitch. Yes. Right, right. Like, doesn't it just sound like Glenda Jackson? Like, it really it does. It really does. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go to our sleuth boys. Let's start with uh, Michael Caine as Milo Tyndall in Sleuth. This is his second of six nominations. And um, going into Oscar night, he only has a, a Golden Globe nomination for drama. In Sleuth, Michael plays Milo, who is a young man called to this giant, gorgeous-ass mansion in the English countryside, um, who is lovers with the Laurence Olivier character, who we'll get to in a moment, um, his wife, and ends up kind of in the... Maybe this is a bad comparison, but in my mind, it's kind of like the first Saw Trap. In a way, like he's playing a really fucked up game and um, it gets it turns out fatal in the end. Um, so, Brandon, what do you think of Michael Caine as Milo and Sleuth? So I really enjoy this movie. Um, when I watched it for this episode, it was my second time watching it. I had wa- I'd seen it years ago. I don't remember what compelled me to watch it back then, but I really enjoyed it then. I really enjoy it now. This, you know, is a two hander. There's really only two characters in this movie. And or I guess you can say two performers because it gets a little weird with Michael Caine there for a minute. But um, it offers Caine specifically a lot of really interesting opportunities because, you know, he's playing the sort of new guy to Laurence Olivier's mistress girlfriend thing who Olivier is kind of fucking with. And, you know, he kind of persuades him to put on this ridiculous outfit and pretend to break into his house so he can kind of frame him for a crime that doesn't actually happen. And then he comes back later as an investigator to investigate, quote unquote, the death of the Michael Caine character, but it's really Michael Caine in disguise and whatever. And um, if you haven't seen this movie, it's wild. And we're just going to be spoiling it here because it's old. And... um, I really enjoy what Michael Caine's dishing out here. The movie's really giving him a lot to play with, um, especially there in the end, even after you know he takes off his uh, detective outfit. And then he gets the opportunity to really fuck with the Laurence Olivier character and get him running around the house all desperate, looking for clues that might implement him in a potential real-life murder and all this stuff. It's just a really fun movie. And when I went to revisit it, I didn't remember that it was two and a half hours and i was like jesus christ why is this movie two and a half hours i don't remember it being this long and then i started watching it and i was like this is fucking fun and the two and a half hours kind of just flew by for me and it's the strength of these performances and we'll get to olivier in a moment of course but i think they're both very good and i i really wish movies were like this again this is a this is a fun one, and I, I really enjoy what Michael Caine's doing in it. Yes. Um, well, this was actually a first-time watch for me, so thank you for this opportunity to watch Sleuth. Yes. Um, 
first of all, really cool to see this very like old guard versus the new generation thing happening here with Lawrence Olivier obviously being like this institution and Michael Caine having like done all these things like Alfie and other sort of subversive stuff. Um, but for Michael Caine, I think in the beginning for me, this is really just sort of the Lawrence Olivier show with Michael Caine very much in this more submissive kind of role, uh, much more reactive to all of the Olivier sort of showboating. Um, and I think he's good as the sort of everyman type of guy who is being just like drawn in by this wild plot. And I think he also sort of shows the resentment that he feels a little bit about the British class system and about dealing with guys like um, Andrew. And to me, he sort of shows that he is someone who is underestimated and he is clearly a smart person, but he also sort of plays it with a little bit of that innocence so that when the twists start to happen, they do land really well. And he still seems like the same person, even though he's really changing into these different personalities i mean the alex cawthorn stuff not to be that guy but like i sort of knew that that was him right away just just saying but um not really a twist for me but he does sort of change his mannerisms and his voice well enough that you could see why someone would be fooled by that but then honestly my favorite part is the last third where he's really just toying with Lawrence Olivier and just getting revenge. And there's something very satisfying, I guess, about how he knows that he's in control now. And there's just like a real, just like a coolness about him that I thought was very earned. So yeah, I'd say this is also a very well-earned nomination, probably one of my favorites of his many nominations. So I'm glad that you got to pop your cherry with this one. That's actually yes. really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I am a huge fan of this movie. I also forgot how much fun this movie is. I think we need more films like this. Bring back, you know, I know like people were like, oh, Knives Out brought back like a whodunit film. I think this does it better and it's not so much that it's a whodunit it's like who's doing what right and there is such a playfulness with these characters first of all i want to do this on stage so badly i want to play this role so badly on stage this Which seems like role? milo okay um could have done either one i Sorry. really could have, but i think milo would be a lot more fun yeah but because it would be more challenging because I'd have to restrain myself more, mm. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. with 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 Andrew, uh, Olivia's character, I feel like I could just kind of be myself. And I don't know how that's <laughs> if that sounds good or not. Um, but, yeah, I you know. Um, I think Kane is having a lot of fun here and you could tell, um, you know, Kevin, you're not the only one. Obviously, you can tell that's Michael Kane, yeah. but there are definite moments and angles that Mankiewicz has in this film that makes it not look like him or have that dialect. Cause I think isn't Kane's English accent. Isn't that like Cockney? Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's with Cockney is like the most like how do I put this lightly? Obnoxious <laughs> of the English accents. And it is very hard to cover up. And yet it kind of works with what he's doing here. Um, you know, there is a, a moment in this film where I also forgot how long it was. And I'm like, oh, okay, wait, we shot him. Where does it go from here? And I like forgot because I hadn't, I haven't probably seen this movie since my blockbuster days. And I loved it then, and I loved it now. And you know what? I'm going to be controversial again. Are you ready for this? After watching this, I would have probably given Mankiewicz the director win. Okay. Yeah. I well, was like, this You are is the fantastic. one. <laughs> what, what's up? <laughs> you are the one. I am yeah, the yeah. one. Um, I mean, I like, seriously, like, I was like, who else was in the director? Because I knew it was Coppola, uh, yeah, uh, Coppola and Fosse. But I forgot Borman was in there for Deliverance and Troel was there for The Immigrants. And I was like, ooh, what a lineup. But I was like, mm, nope, Mankiewicz definitely has this win for me. Um, but yeah, I think this is a fantastic nomination. And it mixes drama and comedy quite well. Yeah, I'm not sure how much you're supposed to be fooled by Michael Caine in this sort of Inspector Scotland Yard drag. I don't know that you're ever really supposed to be tricked. I think I'm just saying just I saw to... some letterbox reviews that were like, oh, my God. So I don't know. Really? Are dumb, oh. so. Okay. Because <laughs> I don't know. I was watching it and I was like, I think you're su- you're supposed to be aware of it. It's the Olivia yeah. character who's the fool, not the audience. But, um, yeah, I, I dig it. I think it's fun. I want I want I know the interior isn't the same, but I want that house without those fucking creepy dolls. Like, that is a gorgeous-ass mansion in the English countryside, and I want it. Okay, thanks. All right, so moving on. It's yours. Uh, (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks for the conversation. Um, All right, moving on. Let's go to Laurence Olivier in Sleuth. This is his 10th of 12 nominations. He plays Andrew Wyke. Um, BAFTA nomination, Golden Globe nomination, and a New York Film Critics Association win uh for actor in sleuth andrew is kind of the gamekeeper he's the master of keys he's whatever else that line is in chicago that what's his name says about big mama morton um he is kind of the one in control in the first half who loses control in the second half uh when the tables are turned who sets up the Kane character and then gets set up set up himself so uh kevin start us off Okay, well, I have been hot and cold on Laurence Olivier as an actor, to be honest. I mean, all of those Shakespeare adaptations that he did are just kind of a slog for me. I have enjoyed him more when he's not doing that kind of thing. And I guess this is another role where that it is very talky and very theatrical, but certainly like him a lot more here. Um, he has the kind of pompous writer type down pat i think of really thinking his shit don't stink basically um just like way too smart for his own good someone who loves to play games with people and trying to outsmart them like don't think it's too much of a stretch for olivier at that point in his career to be in a role like this um he just sort of like marlon brando sort of just has that level of dominance in that first act um but not in a way that's like hard-edged or that makes him 
like too serious. It's more in the way of like, this is a very eccentric person, but also he has a lot of power and that actually sort of makes him kind of terrifying because like he's clearly having so much fun with it and he could sort of do anything and that's scary to me at least but um it's i think the first half like it's it's really his film but then you have that turn where you know he wants to shoot him for real and it's very cold and clinical and that's a very impactful moment and where he begins to lose me a little bit though is as the film was going on and i just really thought he overplayed the whole thing of the shoe being on the other foot and michael kane being in control like it's such a drastic turn of him suddenly being so clueless that he has no idea that this guy was now in disguise and he's just like unraveling in this way that didn't exactly work for me because this is a guy who's like so used to being in control and he's used to having things his way so I get why he would be sort of panicked when he was going to be found out but I feel like a character like this would at least try to pretend that they still knew what was going on and that they still had like some level of control but it sort of felt like different characters for me by the end I guess the the transition didn't really work for me as well as it did with Michael Caine. So, yeah, I don't know if that's even a hot take, but that's how I feel on our pal Lawrence. So I pretty I pretty much agree for the most part. Um, I really dig this performance from Olivier. I agree that it's not exactly a stretch for him, and yet it's such a good fit for him. Mm. This character is so cunning and calculated and so full of himself that it makes sense that someone like Laurence Olivier at this stage in his career would be playing him because this guy is uh, a mystery novelist he's used to creating these intricate elaborate puzzles that fool people by design that's kind of his job and he's very successful he has this very extravagant estate um, that we mentioned earlier. And um, I think Laurence Olivier eats this role up. Um, I really dig what he's doing here. I agree that the that middle or that sort of third quarter of the movie when Michael Caine is in disguise is a little bit funny because you'd think that someone as smart as uh, Olivier here would be able to pick up on it or would at least, you know, bluff his way afterward to imply that he maybe he was in on it the whole time, but he really doesn't. And I think that's really more of a fault with the direction than the performance itself. Um, but I, I really like Lawrence Olivier also in the final quarter of this movie when the tables have turned and he's at this weird desperation point. And yet he also seems to be having a good time on a very strange level because, you know, he's been told that there are what four clues in the house implicating him in the supposed murder of his girlfriend and he has to solve these riddles to go find them and he finds himself sort of in the place of one of his characters and when he does solve these riddles he has these aha moments that are so cute and i love watching the gears turn in in olivier's head and his explosive realizations when he has solved one of the riddles and um finding the the clues in this murder that may or may not have actually happened. 
but yeah, I I really dig it. I'm also sort of hot and cold on Olivier. Sometimes he really works in a performance, and sometimes he really doesn't for me. Um, his style doesn't always quite jive with what I'm into. But this is one where I think all of his strengths and the sort of specific Olivier idiosyncrasies are completely in line with the character. So I'm I'm really into this one. I think this is just a fun movie through and through. Oh, you mean you guys aren't the biggest fans of Laurence Olivier Oscar nominee for Othello? Mm. Yes. Um, I also am not a huge fan of this man's Oscar resume. Surprise, surprise. Fuck <laughs> Will Shakespeare, man. Billy Shakes. Billy Shakes. <laughs> And then I think his first one was from Withering Heights, which is like Emily Bronte or something. So mm-hmm. it's like, I just can't catch a fucking break with this guy until Sleuth. Um, I, <laughs> Billy Shakes, shut up, Kevin. Go ahead. Uh, him and who, who's the other? Oh, Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we just, what Kevin put me through on that episode? You just hate books. I just hate what? You just hate books. <laughs> I love reading books. Reading is hard. Reading is hard. We get it. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, anyway, um, hooked on phonics. I am not. Um, so I, I again, I really like this movie. I think Olivier is having a lot of fun here. I think it's good to see this type of nomination from a guy whose resume really is nothing but a direct copy of someone else's work. I mean, that's not being shade when that's kind of what it is he's quote unquote the king of shakespeare outside of shakespeare himself and you know it kind of really reminds me of um brana's um resume which coincidentally uh kenneth brana made a remake of sleuth with michael kane in olivier's role and jude law in michael kane's role and it's 88 minutes long. So what is in this movie compared to this one? I do not know. But I have questions. Have you guys seen it? Nope. No, but I really want to after rewatching this version. Yeah. Apparently it's not good because there's like 88 minutes of it. And this one's two and a half hours long. So apparently they cut something out. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Olivier is having a lot of fun here. It's good to see him in this. Who knew that this man could do slapstick comedy? I wouldn't have known that. Um, did Joni know that? Maybe she's the one that pushed him to this. Maybe she said, you're so fucking uptight, Larry. You need to do a goddamn comedy. And Joan Plowright gave him the script. That's how it worked in my mind. Um, but I, I I, do think this is a, a really good nomination. In fact, I would say it's Clarence Olivier's best. And I'm only saying it's his best because I've only seen three of them. And I ain't going down that rabbit hole of Billy Shakespeare just yet. Wow. What's the other one that you've seen? Uh, the Boys in Brazil and oh. Othello. I liked him in Marathon Man, I recall. Oh, I did see that one. So I've seen four of them. He has a scary knife arm, as I recall. He's like a Bond villain in that movie. Yeah, like a knife like shoots out of his arm and he kills people and drills mm-hmm. holes in Dustin Hoffman's teeth. Yeah, so I've actually seen four. And then the, his other ones, yeah, they're Hamlet, Henry V., Richard Three, Henry V, Rebecca, <laughs> Wither Heights, 
and uh, the entertainer. He's very hot in Wuthering Heights. I just wanted to add that. He he very much is. That is the that is a fact. So if but it helps. Is it worth it. I'm not a big fan of that film in general, but if you're watching it strictly for Lawrence Olivier's physical aesthetics, yes. Let's put it on in the background. Make it your screensaver. Mm. I'm, I'm looking at photos of him and Merle Oberon in it right now, which speaking of Merle Oberon, you just posted about her today, Kevin. Yes. Look at oh, how, Merle. Look how this all just comes full circle. We love old Merle. Oh, Merle. Um, anyone else got anything on Larry? That's all I got on Larry. I want to hear Joan Plowright call him Larry. <laughs> Larry, you gotta do a comedy. Anyway. Do like sleuth, to... Larry. I like do sleuth. All right, it's from Manhattan now. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why that came out of me like that. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's go on to a fellow LGBT. Paul Winfield, Nathan Lane in Sounder, his sole nomination and no precursors. Um, Paul Winfield, again, plays Nathan, who is the patriarch of this family, um, married to Cicely Tyson's character, has all these kids and does what he has to do to survive and provide for him, for them, but um, is caught and sent to a labor camp and later comes home. Um, Brandon, I think it's your turn, correct? Why don't you start us? So I think this is a really beautiful and intricate performance um, as uh, Nathan Lee here in Sounder. You know, this is one that I I revisited because it had been so long since we had done our 1972 episode and we talked about Cicely Tyson. I felt like I had to rewatch it to really, you know, fully do it justice. And he brings so much warmth and heart to this film that I'm not going to say the film needs because it's already so warm and you know it's so I guess family friendly I don't know if that's the right way to put it but it's uh he brings another layer to it I think there's a subtlety and a lot of nuance to his performance there's a lot that I think he's not necessarily holding back but there's a lot there that can be revealed by really looking at what he's doing because you know like this is a supposed to be a family film and so it's not going to be quite that upfront with a lot of the things that nathan lee has been dealing with all his life and into adulthood and as a father and as a husband but they're there um he's doing the work he's putting in all this backstory like paul is painting a portrait with Nathan's face and with the subtleties in every word that he's saying. There's so much rich subtext to nearly every line delivery. And when he's not there, you really feel his absence because there are huge chunks of the film where he's not exactly present. And um, that's sort of, you know, the nature of that character and what causes a lot of the, the conflict within this family. But when he is there, he he just brings that little something else that really makes this movie shine in a way. I think he's doing tremendous work here. I wish we had seen, you know, more of him over the years. I wish, you know, this this industry had really done him justice. But I think this is a really good example of um, the work he he was able to do 
as a performer. So I had seen Sounder before. I remembered Cicely Tyson's performance and uh, Kevin Hooks, the kid. But I honestly went into this being like, I don't really remember what Paul Winfield did and why he earned the nomination. So I guess similar to Brandon, it had been a while for me watching this, but it kind of sort of felt like watching this for the first time in some ways, but I think he's very, very good at this role. I can't say I found him outstanding necessarily. I think Kevin Hooks would have been deserving of a nomination too. Um, I think, I mean, well, he he really does disappear for like large chunks of the movie. I can't say that for me it was a case of his presence looming so large that he had the same kind of impact when he was off screen. Uh, but I think he has a, a really nice warm presence in the beginning, very fatherly, the sort of classic tough but fair sort of thing. And I think he gets that tone right. And he really plays well off of Kevin Hooks and very good chemistry with Cicely Tyson. Um, he just has a certain masculine energy to him that shows him, I think, to be someone who has to make a lot of hard choices in his life but all of it is just out of the love for his family and he also has a few subtle moments that i picked up on like when he's being taken away to the jail and it looks like you know he wants to say something to his wife but he can't really find the words to express that um and the big reunion moment, I think he plays really well, just like the exhaustion of everything he's been through and just being so relieved that he's home now. Um, and I think he really ends the film, probably. This, that's this, probably the strongest part of his performance, uh, where he tells his son like that he wants to just be friends with him and he's tearing up. I imagine that's part of what sort of clinched him the nomination. But yeah, it's an inspired nomination. Like he didn't really have other precursor nominations. So they sort of went off the board here. And I don't think he was that well known either. So I'm glad he got it. And it's, it's again, nice to have a more subtle performance in this group of a lot of over-the-top theatrical stuff. But don't think it quite gets to a winning level for me, but happy with the nomination. I called him Nathan Lane, didn't I? You did. I, yeah, I knew what you meant with Nathan Lee, but... Yeah, still. that's why I said Lee, kind of. Yeah, I realized <laughs> when and how you said that. I looked back at my notes and like, oh my god, I put Nathan Lane down. <laughs> Whoops. Paul Winfield as Nathan Lane. Right, right. I'd um, buy a ticket to that. <laughs> right? So, yeah. This is a nomination um, that happened, and oh boy. I I don't understand why it's in lead because it's not the lead. I agree with that. Um, he's definitely like I like I was remember I didn't have to rewatch this one because like I own Sounder. And I'll put it in every once in a while. And so I feel like I'm that familiar with this movie by now. And I actually rewatched over quarantine. So I was good. But I remember doing the 72 episode and Brandon shocking me with, 
putting Sicily uh, in supporting. And I'm very curious to what he does here, because if we're going to agree on this as well, because we have not agreed on anyone else's placement thus far in this episode. Um, but I'm very curious to hear that. But yeah, he, I mean, this nomination happened. I think it's good, but this feels like a coattail because Sounder, remember, also got in for picture. I was actually very surprised, Kevin, that Sounder did not end up being the, the film that you did the review on. Um, I think what the immigrants won mm-hmm. for, for your show. This just feels like with the main nominations that it got, like Sounder was a big film to, you know, to to possibly upset. Um, And that's as a whole, that's including Paul's, maybe that's not including Paul's nomination, because again, this feels like a coattail. Um, I I think he's he's fine. Um, He does his job. He shows up. Never really connected to his character. And uh, yeah, it's here. Um, I would like to point out, I mentioned in the beginning, a fellow LGBT, Paul was openly gay. He um, was never alive to uh, be legally married, but he uh, was married in his eyes to his husband. And uh, yeah, he if he if he had won, he would have been the first openly gay actor to win the Academy Award for acting. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's that. His... Uh, he was with his uh, his husband Charles until his husband Charles's death in 2002, and uh, yeah, it's uh, he died in 04. So, dude was around for a while. Rest in peace, sir. All right, here it is. Let's talk about it. Peter O'Toole as Jack the 14th Earl of Gurney in the ruling classes. This is his fifth of eight nominations. Going into Oscar night, he has a National Board of Review win for actor and a National Society of Film Critics. He places third. Um, in the ruling class, he plays, again, Jack, the 14th Earl of Gurney. Say that 10 times fast. Uh, a man who inherits a fortune after a, uh, his father uh, hangs himself by accident, I think, while jerking off. I'm not Correct. really sure if, if I think it's implicated, but obviously you don't see it. Um, what auto, what is it called? Auto erotic asphyxiation. Very David Carradine (laughs) way to go. Um, (laughs) so that happened. And then the family's like, who the fuck is this guy? And it ends up being like, uh, a Jesus wannabe and some shenanigans ensue. And, uh, I don't even know who's up. I think it's Kevin, Kevin, Brandon, one of you guys. I think it's me. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm going to take a page out of Joey's book here. What <laughs> what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> like, I truly don't understand how they got away with something this unhinged in 1972 and released by a major studio. Like, it's just baffling to me. Um, like I'm thinking of the scene where he's like making the transition because he goes from thinking he's Jesus Christ to thinking he's Jack the Ripper. And he's like seeing thunderbolts coming out of the guy's hands and like there's suddenly a gorilla with a top hat and it's all like combined with this footage of his wife who's having a baby. And I'm like, what am I actually watching? Um, so yeah, I feel like I'm still trying to work out my feelings on what I really thought of the film itself. Uh, but Peter O'Toole, I think is so, 
so deeply committed to this role and so committed to the bit of this movie that I have to respect it. Like, I mean, he is just at a 10 from the very first scene that he enters and is just fully grandstanding and all his little delusions about being the savior of the world. And I think actually he could have made that more like wink wink to the audience in the sense of like oh i've gone crazy and isn't this all silly you know but because like this is a very self-referential like very meta movie um but i feel like he's so in this character that he sort of makes you believe that he really does have these delusions and that's actually what sort of makes this performance kind of unnerving for me especially when he switches over to jack the ripper and he does this really good vocal work with like the stuttering and the sort of cadence which is so different from how he was speaking in the beginning um the part that really struck me is when he's in that room and he's like staring at the camera and he's revealing that he's jack the ripper and there's like such an intensity there that again compared to what other actors might have done i think a scene like that maybe could have come across like unintentionally funny but i think he just has like this really specific kind of gravitas to him and those eyes are just so intense that you sort of believe that he believes it and that's what makes it sort of terrifying i mean peter o'toole i think was such a great theatrical performer and i love him in the line in winter i thought he was robbed that year and honestly, as much as this movie kind of creeped me out, like, I'm glad I watched this because he's, I s sort of was blown away by, like, the commitment here. Like, and I still don't know how I actually feel about it, but I was, I was definitely affected by it, which is more than I could say for some others here. Yeah, there's a, there's a fine line between Jesus Christ and Jack the Ripper, if you think mm. about it. I'm pretty much in the same boat. I I really admire that Peter O'Toole went so far with this performance. I really I really admire the commitment, and I I I don't know how I feel about it though, because it's so it's so strange, and I'm kind of into it in this really weird way, just because it is so strange, and because he is just so in it. And I was completely captivated by whatever in the fuck he was doing. But at the same time, I can't fully articulate what the fuck he was doing. Just because I don't think I'm quite on this film's level. Um, like the like the lightning fingers thing. Like the, like the Emperor of the Sith lightning fingers yeah. that happen in this film. I was, I was entertained as all hell. But at the same time, I was like, what is happening? So I'm kind of in this weird in between with this with this one. I I I love Peter in Lion in Winter and Beckett. I think he's he's really great. And I wasn't surprised that he became so fully committed to this that he was at a ten the entire time because that's kind of what I've come to expect from him. I just don't quite know if I am really with the film the entire time there's sort of like it's like that that debate about hamlet that comes up a lot like is he really crazy 
or is he faking it? That comes up in classrooms all the time when studying Hamlet. And I kind of had that thought going through my head watching this movie. I was like, does this dude really think that he's Jesus or is he faking it to get at the people around him? These really like snooty upper class people. Is he really just trying to, to get one on them? And is that the point? But I don't, I don't find that it was really that clear in the beginning or in the end. So I ultimately don't quite know exactly what the movie's getting at. Maybe it takes two watches, at least for me, uh, to really get it. I'm not sure. But at the very least, I admire the, the sheer commitment of Peter O'Toole here in the ruling class. Okay. Why the fuck is this movie? There you go. I have done many drugs in my lifetime. Some I like more than others. Some I would never do again. There are some that I've never touched and have no plan on ever trying. Now let's put that last category in front of me. Do I do the ones I've never touched and never plan on trying, or do I watch this movie again? I'm doing the drugs. This piece of shit fucking movie is so goddamn stupid. I never, never want to hear come out of a pundit's fucking mouth again. That's outside of the Academy's wheelhouse. Fuck you. I don't know what the fuck Peter O'Toole is doing here. It is trash. This movie is trash. I want to know who bribed who, who sucked whose dick to get this nomination. I am beside myself on feelings. I tried watching this for the first time probably about a decade ago. Didn't finish it. I was like, this is fucking stupid. The I watch it this time over six days. I had to keep pausing it and walk the fuck away. I was like, this is awful. And this is a long movie, too, by the way. This is the same amount of time as Sleuth, and it yeah. feels like it's eight hours longer. I know. Like, make that make sense. I also agree that Peter O'Toole was robbed for The Lion in Winter. I think I'd have to look at who else in that lineup, but I'm pretty sure I have them at one. I no, <laughs> no me gusta. I don't want it. No, thank you, ma'am. No. That's all. I had a feeling you would either love it or hate it with a fiery passion. I just wasn't quite sure exactly which way it would go. Yeah. I think I, I have like an inkling that you would not care for this particular brand of whatever the fuck yeah. this is. <laughs> and yet I thought there was a sliver of a chance that you would be obsessed. I wasn't sure, though. <laughs> like, this is secretly brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really didn't know. In and out, Jonan Cusack voice. Fuck the ruling class. There you go. Period. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of funny to me. I like I when after Kristoff had said that, see, I got his name right, and then you guys said that, I was like, what do you guys th- think of me? Like, 
what what vibes do I really give off to you people? You don't want us to answer that. I kind of do now. <laughs> That's the thing. I'm so curious. Um, yeah. A- anything else? No. No. Okay. All right. All right. Hard. Hard. No. Let's get to the ranking, boys. So, as a reminder, your nominees for supporting actor were Joel Gray in Cabaret, Eddie Albert in The Heartbreak Kid, James Kahn in The Godfather, Robert Duvall in The Godfather, and Al Pacino in The Godfather. And I'm putting Al Pacino at number five because I do see him as a co-lead here. Uh, wish he was in the other category, but he's not, so he's my number five here. Well, just like I did with him in 2014 with The Judge, Robert Duvall is my number five. Just not doing much for me. I respect it from afar. Not really my thing. Number five, I agree with Kevin. That's where Robert Duvall should go. He probably should stay there. And we probably should have nominated John Marley instead for his spot. Or John Cazale at any point in his career. Just saying. Yes. But this would yeah. have been nice, too. Go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> so this might come as a shocker, but I have Eddie Albert here at number four. I like Albert, what he's doing in The Heartbreak Kid. But for some reason, he's just not the person who's on my mind when I'm thinking about The Heartbreak Kid. That's, you know, usually Jeannie Berlin giving her brilliant performance or, you know, Charles Grodin being absolute scum of the earth. Eddie Albert's great, but um, I guess uh, he just doesn't quite have that memorable factor that some of the others here in this lineup do. So he's my number four. Well, Eddie Albert is also my number four. Um, For the record, all these other performances I really, really like. So sort of like splitting hairs. And I don't think this is quite a winning performance for me. Maybe if he had an additional scene, it would have put it over the top a little more. But Really, really fun. I think more people should watch this movie. Um, my number four is Joel Gray in Cabaret. Um, du- Duvall's just lucky, I guess, that I don't remember he's in it. Um, because I kind of keep him on the same page of, like, this isn't really Oscar-worthy work. Um, he's fine. He's good. He's doing his thing, but... This is not anything I would have ever watched originally if I hadn't known that he won an Oscar and been like, you know what this de- you know what this deserves? An Oscar win. Or a nomination. And I'm gonna stick with that. So I have him at four. My number three is gonna be the very hot James Kahn. I think James Kahn's really good here. Um, I think he brings the fire and all the energy that this movie needs, but it doesn't quite have the complexity, I guess, as the other two or like the technical prowess i guess so uh james Kahn is in the middle of this lineup for me at number three well my number three is also james Kahn. um i think he really burns bright when he is on screen and he's just has this very specific energy that i love in the film but I will say that after he exits the picture i can't say that i'm still thinking about him as much as I would want to be outside of like his looks, I guess. But like in terms of performance, it's just it doesn't really last by the end of the film. So that's why I have him right in the middle. Um, My number three is Al Pacino. Um, He is delightful. 
in The Godfather, and he's doing really good work. Um, let's say we live in a world that didn't have The Godfather didn't have sequels. I think I might regret not giving him a win here, but since we clearly see he does better in the sequels, I will even say three. Um, he opens up the character a lot more. I can play with Michael a lot more. I think he's doing decent work here, and it's really, really good for him. But in this lineup, I think three is very fair. Um, so that's where I'm going to put him. My runner-up is going to be Robert Duvall. This is one that I I admire when I really start picking it apart and comparing him to other characters and what I think Tom is trying to do, the function he's trying to play in this family that he's been invited into but doesn't really quite belong but kind of does, but he's also kind of always on the outside. And it's sort of a really tricky situation that Tom finds himself in. I think Robert Duvall kind of, kind of nails the the struggle of this character and where he is in the world um but joel gray for me i really shines in this movie uh cabaret doesn't really work as a film if the mc doesn't work and i think joel gray does i think he does everything that the movie needs him to do he becomes the sort of barometer for the changing of the political climate and the danger that is approaching uh, he brings this otherworldly zaniness and weirdness uh, that I think totally belongs. He is like the definition of the other, which is so cool for him. Um, so, yeah, Joel Gray is going to be uh, my winner in this lineup. Hmm. My runner up is Al Pacino. Um, I think he is probably a lead. Um, I don't know how much this is sort of punishing him for being a lead, but obviously it's a phenomenal performance that he really clearly studied a lot to really inhabit this role and is very compelling to me pretty much even in his early moments of the film that are more subtle uh, all the way to the end. Uh, but for me, my winner, of course, is Joel Gray, who I think really delivers the kind of performance that is sort of unknowable and sort of just like almost alien to me in a way that is actually a positive in this case um it's something where this is clearly not really like a human being but functions in this way that is so haunting for me especially in the little interstitials uh, that really just enhances the experience of watching the film and that's what a supporting performance should be for me so that is why i have joel gray right there all right, so my runner-up is Eddie Albert, which means I give James Kahn the win. Um, Eddie Albert is a great comedic force in The Heartbreak Kid. Um, and there was something I definitely got going into the movie, specifically waiting and watching for him, um, that I didn't get from the first two times I had seen the film. Um, and from the subtleness to the physical comedy to his facials, it's perfection, and it's so good. He would be my winner if James Kahn wasn't here. James Kahn's Sonny is the biggest standout in the first Godfather for me when it comes to any of the acting, um, mainly because maybe it is because, I, like I said in, in my examples, every Italian family has their Sonny. Many Italian families have more than one Sonny. 
So I, I know many Sonnies and it is so spot on um, that it almost feels like I've been to dinner at the Corleone families because of this character. Um, and his presence is the biggest missing component of the sequels. Um, I'm glad that uh, um, Kevin, you had mentioned that because that is very noticeable. And I think if it's that noticeable, you have to kind of reward the guy for the strength he puts there. So I got to say, James Caan should be my winner. Well, is my winner, but there you go. As a reminder, your leading actors were Paul Winfield as Nathan Lee in Sounder, uh, Peter O'Toole in The Rolling Class, Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier in Sleuth, and Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Paul Winfield is my number five. Um, this is a category fraud performance, um, but even if he wasn't category fraud, it still would be my five. It's not really impressive. He's just there. So there he is. How about you, Kevin? It breaks my heart to say it, but I agree that Paul Winfield is my number five. Um, I'm just a little more impressed with what everyone else in this category is doing. Again, maybe it's a little bit of him not having enough screen time compared to everyone else, but I I really like him a lot. Like, I really love this lineup in general, so I can't say that he's, like, bad by any means to be deserving of this number five, but that's just where he landed for me. Sorry to that man. Well, Paul's also my number five. Paul Winfield, I think, is even more um, firmly in supporting for me because with him, we never really quite see him apart from the son, at least with uh, Cecily Tyson with the mother. We at least get little moments like when she goes into town and we're at least following her separate. We get a little impression of who she is uh, in this family apart from everyone else. But with Winfield, uh, we're sort of denied that. And even though he does have a really strong presence, I think, I like his performance a little bit more here. Um, his perspective is absolutely crucial to shaping the story, but I just don't think he's quite there enough and we don't really follow him enough. So for me, um, this this is a supporting role, maybe a meaty supporting role, but definitely not quite lead. So uh, Paul's my number five. Look at us all agreeing. Wow, mm -hmm. Kevin, last time you were here with, or the first time, your five and my one switched. Now our fives match up. That's probably wow. as far as we're going to get. Probably. That's where it ends. <laughs> That's where it ends. All right. Number four, uh, Marlon Brando, Category Fraud. Um, this is a supporting por supporting performance. Um, even if you, even if I were to go along with agreeing that Pacino was the lead, it doesn't take away the fact that Brando is very supporting in this. He's like Paul gone for most of the movie. There's a giant chunk more than a giant chunk where he's not there. Um, and with that, uh, I got to put him in four. I think he's the better of the two category frauds. That's why he's there. But um, yeah, that's where I got to put Brando. He's good, but doesn't belong in this category. Kevin. My number four is Laurence Olivier. Um, I think that he's really, really fun, especially in the first section of the film. Again, he does start to lose me a little bit as the film goes along, but maybe I slightly overstated how much I sort of didn't care for those aspects because I still think he has such a presence 
and is clearly delighting as Brandon was saying earlier about like you know running around the house and following all the clues and everything I think he really is more fun to me than he usually is on screen so that has to count for something but not, not quite enough for a win for me uh, my number four is going to be Peter O'Toole. Um, this is just a, an LOLWTF kind of performance for me. Love that he really goes there, uh, but I don't really love the performance or the film. So he's my number four. Number three, Peter O'Toole is so goddamn lucky we've got two category frauds in here for me because <laughs> he's here uh, by default. That's all. Wow. Okay. Well, my number three is Peter O'Toole, I suppose. That's how we're pronouncing it now. Um, <laughs> related to Gary Oldman, of course. Um, yes. <laughs> so I think this is just a performance that defies any sort of categorization. Like, I don't really even know how I feel about what I watched. And therefore, he is just right in the middle i could go either way but i don't want to give him the win for this much as i love the man my number three is uh going to be michael kane for sleuth uh i really enjoy michael kane here i like the opportunities this movie gives him um i really like my whole top three honestly but there's just you know michael kane's the the one i like the least i suppose there's something about the other two that I just find myself gravitating more toward. Um, so yeah, Michael Caine's fun in Sleuth, and I wish more movies were as fun as Sleuth these days, but he's only number three for me. Wow. My top two are the Sleuth Boys. So I'm going to say this. If we had done this podcast 10 years ago, my one and two would be switched. It was only on the rewatch that I truly realized he's my number one and I'm going to stick with it. And here we go. My runner up is Lawrence Olivier, which means I would give Michael Caine the win. Um, Lawrence is fantastic. And there's something that I really, really overly enjoyed every time I watch this film, which clearly is not much, but I will definitely try to make this at least a yearly watch now. Um, but when I had seen this 10 years ago, I was so enamored with this performance. I actually remember specifically loving Olivia's performance and not really getting Michael Caine's nomination at that point in my life. Um, it is so funny and so good, but Caine steals that show. That is like, there's something to be said about a actor who kind of in a way might be put on the back burner for one part of the movie and then completely flips the script for the second half and that's what michael kane does and i'm here for it and his character really does have the most fun even though his character ends up with the tragedy uh in the end uh, i mean they both do but the fatal tragedy but yeah, Michael Caine sells it for me, and I want to stop it up with a biscuit. So Michael Caine is my winner. Kevin? Hmm. Interesting. Well, my runner-up is Michael Caine, who I think really 
as the film was going along, just managed to sort of impress me even more. I loved all of the different evolutions of his character, and I think he totally made that feel like a complete journey. And that's not easy to do. So I was very, very impressed by him. But I will be my boring beige self and say that Marlon Brando correctly won this Oscar. Um, I think that is just such a commanding performance from start to finish. And he manages to sprinkle in those moments of emotion at right at just the right times. And it's iconic for a reason. As much as, again, as Brandon said, it's a overused phrase, but iconic in this case for both Marlon Brando and Joel Gray. So Academy, you got it right this time in my eyes. So for me, Marlon Brando is my runner up. Um, this is a, a magnificent performance. Um, you know, someone can do an impression of Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone, even people who haven't seen The Godfather know that it's the godfather like that's how specific this performance is and um brando's a legend for a reason and this movie's you know part of that whole um tapestry of his talents but uh laurence olivier is my favorite in this lineup i was really enjoying this movie through and through and laurence olivier was a huge part of that i think all the things that make laurence olivier great are on display here um it just taps into all of his his little talents that make him you know special and uh yeah i've already sort of gushed about how much i really just enjoy this movie but um lawrence olivier is a shining star for me in that in this lineup for you know his performance in sleuth so he is my winner i am so happy i got that right for you at least because there was something that really did say lawrence olivier for you Kevin, mm. congratulations. You made it full circle on your Academy Queen's journey. Wow. Thank you so much. This <laughs> this has been wonderful, as always. I can't uh, believe I actually managed to like predict that Brandon's lineup, or no, Joey's lineup was actually going to be Brandon's lineup. Like I I don't know how that happened, but <laughs> yes. Um yeah, that was a good one. And yeah. Brandon got yours right on right on point. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you picking Paul Winfield, that would have been funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, before we sign off here, a couple things. As a reminder, Michael Kane, James Kahn, my winner. Kevin. Marlon Brando, Joel Gray. And I have Lawrence Olivier and Joel Gray. And Kevin, where can the listeners find you on the interweb? You could find me on Twitter at Kevin underscore Jacobson. I write for Gold Derby and Awards Watch. Um, you can also find my podcast where I'm tackling Best Actress at And the Runner Up Is. And the Twitter for that is at Oscar Runner Up. Love that. Love that. Side note laughed at your own expense today i'm so glad your sense of humor with swan song has continued into this season thank you so much that was wonderful yes <laughs> Brandon, i will go I down with this ship i feel like um every time glenn close is up for something we should play maybe next time from cabaret in your honor wow thank you brandon <laughs> I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I'm getting it from all sides now. Let that be on record. 
It was so apropos for this episode. I yeah. had to mention it. Uh, so good, so good. Uh, Brandon, anything else before we uh, head out of here until next month? Uh, should we um, announce what next month's episode is? Yes, actually, it's your turn to do so. So why don't you let everyone know where we're going? Yeah, so this will be our last time talking about the boys. So we have three episodes talking about the boys, three talking about the ladies. Uh, this will be our final men. And we felt like we could not not do the Amadeus year. So we have the gentleman of 1984 coming to you in December. Love that. We do, we will, and I am so excited because what a thrill that year is. What a thrill. Yes, and talking about fucking farming ladies. There's no farmers in this bunch. (laughs) No farms. No farms. All right. Um, I forgot what I do. It's been so long. How do I end this shit? I forgot. Uh, Okay. Well, um, thanks for coming to Academy Queens. (laughs) (laughs) Just do it like you're an SNL host. All right. Uh, I want to thank Lauren, the cast. Uh, I want to thank Kevin Jacobson and Glenn Close. I want to thank Brandon and Barbara Stanwyck. And until next time on The Count of Three, we'll say bye. Ready? One, two, three. Bye. Bye.